Climate Change in Indiana by WFHB environmental news correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel. In 2022, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change announced that urgent steps were needed to be taken in order to limit the warming of the planet to under 1.5 degrees Celsius, which would require an immediate reduction in greenhouse gas emissions across the world. While the subject of climate change may seem distant to some, even the state of Indiana has begun to notice the effects. In order to properly understand how climate change will impact the state, WFHB presents Climate Change in Indiana, a multi-part series providing background about climate change and addressing how Indiana is likely to be impacted. Researchers have rigorously studied what Indiana's future will entail, and these stories cover the likely outcomes and provide some specific context. Time is of the essence, so a knowledgeable foundation about climate change in Indiana may help spark future action. Episode 1, The Mock Climate Change Debate with Professor Ben Kravitz, a climate scientist and assistant professor at Indiana University. The professor and I went back and forth, with myself portraying a climate denier, asking him questions or making statements that are skeptical of climate change. The professor, with his prior experience with climate change skeptics, was able to explain why common climate myths are incorrect. Ideally, you listeners out there can understand his arguments and hopefully be able to debate your relatives more effectively at the next family gathering. Now, without further ado, here is the Q&A. I'm going to ask the professor questions that a climate change denier would say or comments they would say so that we can see how a climate scientist would respond so that you listeners at home can be able to tell your relative why they're wrong. (laughs) I'll do my best. (laughs) For this first one, it is, so it was such a cold winter. There was a, there was that big snowstorm at the beginning of February Surely global warming can't be happening if it is still so cold. Well, winter's always going to be cold. We're we're not talking about winter suddenly becoming summer. And also one of the most important words in the phrase global warming is global. A snowstorm in one place doesn't necessarily mean anything. What we're looking at is large scale changes over a long time period which is what's happening under global warming and how those changes might affect individual locations. And so when it comes to global climate, uh, some people say the climate is always changing. The earth goes through a series of warming and cooling periods. Uh, There was a cooling period during the medieval times. Would it be possible that right now we're just going through a warming period? So, It's absolutely right that the Earth's climate has always changed and we've gone through warming and cooling periods. Um, And in fact, the periods that we've gone through in the past, the warming periods, some of them have been a lot warmer than what we're experiencing now. So that's not the issue. Um, Usually those warming periods take tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years or some major event like a huge volcanic eruption or a meteor hitting the earth. Um, We're not seeing any of that. What we're seeing is very rapid changes 
in a very short period of time. And also we have a mechanism for it. Like we understand the physics of what happens if you put large amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We've known about that since the mid 1800s. This is 19th century science. Um, right now, that's what we're seeing. We are, we're seeing the effects that we might expect from doing those sorts of things. So, I mean, science doesn't prove anything. It is always possible that this could be due to natural causes and not due to humans. But I'd say the chance of that is very, very small. And if you, and there is no evidence supporting it that we've been able to discover. And even if global warming were occurring, wouldn't uh, warming be better? There would be less cold waves, more areas of the world, such as the North would be more habitable. There'd be better growing seasons, stuff like that. Well, um, I think you'd have to ask the people who live in the North if they think it would be better because better is a different meaning for everybody. Um, so it is true that areas in the North would get warmer, but areas everywhere get, would get warmer. The tropics are already pretty warm. So if they get warmer, it might get to the point where people can't live there anymore. So I'm not going to say that that's good. Um, I think it that we can't just focus on one area. We're talking about the entire globe. I've heard that there are still scientists that disagree about climate change and that there is no scientific consensus as more evidence is needed. Is this true? Um, there are scientists who disagree with climate change. There are even climate scientists who disagree that climate change is happening and that it's caused by humans. 97% um, of climate scientists understand that the climate is changing and that it's caused by human emissions of greenhouse gases. So um, I don't think it's responsible to just focus on a, focus on a small portion. We, this is, I've never really seen numbers like that before in many aspects of science. Um, so that's a pretty high number in terms of how science goes. Some climate skeptics would say aren't most climate scientists just financially benefiting by saying that uh, climate change exists? Oh, I wish. Um, <laughs> I'm not getting rich on this stuff. I would, um, I'm, you know, going to be comfortably middle class and I've decided that's okay. Uh, I'll tell you a way I would get rich and famous is if I were able to find strong evidence showing that climate change is not caused by people or that it's not happening at all. I would be one of the most famous people on the planet. Unfortunately, that's not how the evidence is going. Is there a possibility that even if climate change were occurring, the natural environment would be able to adapt such as animals and plants? Um, some would, some wouldn't. So um, when you, look at a, a tree, for example. So how quickly can a tree move um, if the climate starts to change? So trees are really good at growing in a certain growing zone. If the growing zone starts to shift, they either move or they die. Um, trees tend to kind of stay where they are. Whereas you know, land mammals, they can move pretty quickly. So they might be okay, um, assuming that where they end up, they have a food source. Um, because a lot of those 
animals eat plants that they're used to. So it's it's really hard to say whether which uh, species would be okay and which wouldn't be okay. Um, but I think it would be naive to say that everything would just be fine. And so after this discussion, you've convinced me. Uh, I believe now believe climate change is real, but there is nothing to be done. It is too late to make changes. Shouldn't we just, you know, continue living as we do and hope for the best? I think we already know the answer to that in that just doing what we're doing and hoping for the best isn't going to work because the way we're headed is not the best. Um, the way we're headed looks pretty bad. And what's also worth pointing out is that when people get together, they're capable of accomplishing absolutely amazing things. Um, I remember when I was in grad school, I went to a talk and um, someone, uh, a professor was saying that he fully believed that in 10 years, some kid in the lab was going to invent cheap solar and it was gonna be a game changer in terms of where we get our energy and renewable energy in general. And he was wrong, it happened in five years. So um, I think stuff like that is really neat. I see a lot of people out there who are really motivated to do something about the climate change problem. And I think an attitude of, well, maybe we should just give up gets in those people's way. So, you know, let us try. When it comes to overcoming the climate crisis, as the professor put it, we as humans are capable of accomplishing absolutely amazing things. Episode 2, Is Climate Change Really Occurring? With Professor Ben Kravitz, a climate scientist and assistant professor at Indiana University. This is the second episode of the series, with this one being based around an explanation as to how scientists know climate change is occurring and why there are some people who choose not to believe the science. tornado damage it just looked like a battle zone to historic flooding you couldn't see anything but water nothing but water and raging wildfires got everybody out but it's heartbreaking the u.n's latest most in-depth scientific report on climate change warns the dangers are immediate and growing more acute Climate science and the general knowledge we have about climate change didn't begin with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The history of this scientific field goes back about two centuries ago, when French physicist Joseph Fourier first proposed the idea that Earth's atmosphere acted as a greenhouse and allowed the planet to remain consistently warm. Irish scientist John Tidal would later begin to determine what the composition of the greenhouse was through laboratory experiments in the 1860s. 
These tests found that compounds related to coal, including carbon dioxide and methane, were excellent sources to absorb energy from the sun. Three decades later, Sivante Arginas discovered that the decreases and increases in global CO2 levels could cool and warm the planet respectively. However, the connection between these discoveries and the growth of the industrial world was not made until the 1930s, when British engineer Guy Stewart Callender realized that average temperatures in the United States had warmed since the Industrial Revolution, and that the Earth as a whole is likely warming. Modern climate science has its origins in the founding of the Mauna Luau Observatory in Hawaii, which began to record atmospheric CO2 levels consistently since 1958. The information gathered at the observatory is depicted in the most famous of climate diagrams, showing CO2 levels rising every year since the record began. This is called the Keeling Curve. The Keeling Curve and the climate models that followed all sought to understand the relationship between the global average temperature and the different impacts humans have on the global climate. Professor Kravitz knows this topic all too well. His 15-year career began by solely focusing on math before becoming interested in atmospheric science and how equations can be used to predict weather and understand climate change. Professor Kravitz explains exactly what his area of focus is when it comes to climate change. I tend to be really interested in physical climate. So basically the way I describe it is when you push the earth system, how does it respond? We call that radiative forcing and climate response. I'm interested in feedbacks. I'm interested in exploring the earth as a system and how we can get strange responses when we do things that seem like they wouldn't elicit strange responses and just sort of poking around and trying to figure out how the earth system works. I tend to do a lot of this work with climate models because um, it's a really great laboratory where you can do strange things to the earth system and not actually mess anything up. In fact, climate modeling can be a useful tool to test numerous theories about climate change. Some models allow the forcings, otherwise known as the impacts, of aerosols to be adjusted, along with the impacts of land use change, surface albedo, which is the reflectivity of the surface of the planet, as well as greenhouse gas emissions. For example, aerosols, when increased, are shown to cool the Earth, while a decrease in surface albedo is shown to warm the planet. Professor Kravitz explains how scientists know that climate change is occurring through the consolidation of numerous historical data points, as well as how we know that humans are definitively causing change. So we have observations that the climate is changing. So we have observations from space, satellites, from the ground, thermometers everywhere. We've had a good thermometer network since the late 1800s. We also have climate models, which are basically our best understanding of how the Earth system's physics work. And we can plug things in. Like if we plug in greenhouse gases, the temperature goes up. And we know why, because we can pick apart the different pieces of the model that are contributing to that. So we can plug in, all right, what have historical emissions done? Let's plug that into the model. The temperature goes up. If you don't have historical greenhouse gas emissions, temperature doesn't go up. So we have a, a bunch of different ways in which we understand climate change. And that's just temperature. We also know that as temperature goes up, the atmosphere can hold more water and it'll change rain patterns. And we can see those in observations and models. We know that 
as temperature goes up, sea ice will melt. And we can see that in observations and models. So there are many, many different points of evidence all building to the same conclusion. It is this conclusion that led to the United Nations founding the aforementioned Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, otherwise known as the IPCC, in 1989, which hoped to explain the scientific view of climate change to the citizens of the world and detail the potential political and economic impacts. The panel releases assessment reports every six to seven years, with the sixth assessment report being released this previous February. The creation of the IPCC inspired many governments worldwide to act. First, the Kyoto Protocol was established and hoped to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 5.2% by 2008. However, the United States pulled out of this agreement. Once again, in 2015, the world agreed to the Paris Climate Agreement, but the United States left the agreement and only just joined again with the new presidential administration. While this may be the push and pull of politics, time is running out. According to the 2019 Climate Action Summit, the temperature of, quote, 1.5 degrees Celsius is the socially, economically, politically, and scientifically safe limit to global warming by the end of this century. And to achieve this, the world needs to work to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, unquote. It seems that the world may be running out of time. With the aforementioned almost two centuries of supporting data, an overwhelming endorsement by the scientific community, and the already visible effects of climate change, why are there still so many people who are unwilling to act? Professor Kravitz explains why people may choose to ignore the science. You'd have to ask them. My personal perspective is that when I see all of this evidence, I understand that it's all pointing toward the same conclusion. There are other people who either cannot or choose not to do that, and I'm sure they have a good reason for it, but that's inconsistent with what the science says. This extends even to our state of Indiana. The state government has taken stances that effectively harms the efforts of environmentalists to stop pollution and hopefully curb climate change. For example, last summer, Governor Eric Holcomb signed House Bill 1191 into law, which removed the powers of local governments to enact energy regulations and prevent fossil fuel usage. Even individual policymakers have made comments that seemingly dispel the seriousness of the issue. Indiana's Republican Senator Todd Young once denied the consensus on climate change when he was a representative for the 9th District, stating, uh, We're often told that there is a consensus among scientists, and uh, I've come to discover, as the number of scientists I talk to and the num- number of things I read, that's uh, not necessarily the case. Despite the opinion of Senator Young, there is a consensus on climate change. When asked whether most climate skeptics are simply uninformed or purposely nefarious, Professor Kravitz had this to say. In my experience, I don't think either one is the case. So I I see very few people out there who are just straight up lying. Like they look at the evidence and say, I'm going to lie about it. For people who are steadfast climate contrarians, giving them more information doesn't help because they will reject the new information because it conflicts with their values. And so what I think is that going on is that there are people out there who ascribe to a particular worldview 
and climate change does not fit in their worldview. So they reject the evidence for it. And you see that sort of thing all the time in other issues. This is you know, basic human nature. But it's important that we know that's what's going on because there are people out there who are working on communication and building trust so that we can hopefully get everybody on board with trying to solve this problem. Do you believe climate change has been communicated poorly? Historically, yeah, I do. Uh, because climate change communication was basically left up to the scientists. And scientists are not necessarily great communicators. Some of them are. Some of them are not. I didn't get into this business because I wanted to be a communicator. I got into this business because I like doing science and I like computers and I like running climate models. And communication is a skill that I just haven't spent a lot of time on. Efforts are being made to better communicate the topic of climate change. One such method is through appealing to one's own metaphorical backyard, such as through a series of radio segments about the topic. How climate change will impact southern Indiana and the rest of the state is an effective tool to help convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to switch to more renewable energy and be more environmentally friendly. Episode 3, Hoosier Farmers in the Changing Climate, with Professor Landon Yoder, an assistant professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. This is the third episode of the series, with this one focusing on how Indiana's agricultural sector and Hoosier farmers are preparing for climate change. forecast that we will continue to see today. Triple digit heat, we've seen seven days so far this summer, and that triple digit heat will continue possibly into some areas for today. All right, so yesterday 101, that is record breaking heat, a record set back in 1887, so a 125-year-old record broken yesterday. Eventually a high of 93, it'll be a steam bath out there with heat index values that'll range anywhere from 105 to maybe even 110 degrees at times throughout the course of the afternoon and into the early evening hours. Farmers tell me it is a dire year for apples, pears, plums, basically any tree fruit. And there are a lot of apple farmers right in our state. Some say this year they've lost everything. As any person living in Indiana has known for the last few years, our summers have been getting warmer. The recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report has found that the average worldwide temperatures will likely exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius in 20 years. The number of days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit will become increasingly common in Indiana, with a possibility of two and a half months of summer being at or higher than 90 degrees. Evidently, every year it seems that our local news stations are reporting on the latest heat wave to hit the state, often warning Hoosiers to keep cool and stay safe. One group of people who are being hurt particularly hard by the warm temperatures are the farmers of Indiana. According to the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, Indiana is ranked 10th in the nation in our total agricultural production, with quite a lot of diversity in the sector, ranging from pumpkins to turkeys and apples to popcorn. Someone who knows quite a bit about Indiana agriculture is Indiana University Assistant Professor Landon Yoder, who has spent many years researching the intersection between 
agricultural production, and climate change. Specifically, how farm management practices impact water quality and crop output. His expertise has aided in the promotion of conservation practices in many farming communities to better maintain crops and livestock in response to abnormal weather-related events. Professor Yoder provides background on farming in Indiana over time and how farmers are experiencing climate change. There are responses to climate change. So corn, uh, soybean, and wheat, winter wheat, tend to be the three biggest row crops. And then you're looking at a lot of hog farms and particularly concentrated animal feeding operations uh, along with that. So that approach to farming has been around for decades, going back to the 1970s where there was a big push. The USDA secretary at the time under Nixon said, you know, we want farmers to get big or get out. So the idea was to look for economies of scale to help make farming more profitable and also to drive exports. So we have that system still in place. The way in which uh, farmers, especially row crop farmers, are experiencing climate change is you have more variability in weather. So you have longer dry spells that can cause uh, withering of crops if they're not getting enough water. And we're having roughly the same amount of rainfall over the course of the growing season as before, but we're getting a lot of that earlier in the spring. So we're getting a higher concentration of rainfall when we don't want it because we want to be able to get out into the field and to plant the crops. And then during the summer, we're getting heavier events, but fewer of those events. So where before you might have had a half inch over a week, you might get an event where you have two inches in a day. Depending on the type of tillage system you're using, you might get a lot of soil erosion because of that amount of intensity from the rainfall. These initial consequences of climate change have started to affect the yearly plans for farmers across the state. Unexpected warm temperatures and unanticipated rainfall can throw farmers off of their calendar and disrupt the growing cycles. When it comes to warmer temperatures, Professor Yoder illustrated how certain crops and livestock will be impacted. In some instances, increasing temperatures can actually lead to some increases in crop yields. So soybeans are predicted, I believe, to have slight increases in their yields because you have potentially better growing conditions for them. Corn is predicted to decrease in yields because of the high, in particular, nighttime temperatures, which means that corn has to adjust by using more of its energy to cool down at night. And so that's going to to slow down its growth. So those are a couple of big trade-offs where you have other, for livestock, for instance, you know, high heat days, so days over 85 degrees are likely to increase. That stresses livestock because that's just like us. It's just very hard to withstand really hot heat for a long time. And so that that can reduce the potential to benefit from, from livestock agriculture. A study done by the Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment has supported Professor Yoder's findings. Observations have shown that, quote, Indiana corn yields are reduced by about 2% for every 1 degree Fahrenheit increase in overnight temperatures during July, unquote. While 2% does not seem that high, for farmers with tens of thousands of acres, that is a lot of crops potentially lost. Another key finding from the assessment was that Indiana livestock will be less likely to eat food and thus become less fertile. Overall, there seems to be a seismic shift happening for the agricultural sector due to climate change.
All of these findings have raised concerns not just for the crops and livestock, but for farmers themselves as well. Professor Yoder commented on how farm workers are going to have to adjust to hot summer temperatures. Farm workers, if they're going to be outside, um, you know, especially for vegetable uh, operations, that's a risk. Heat stress is a risk that's already uh, causing problems in many places in the world. And if you have a heat wave during the summer when you've got to be outside during work, uh, you're probably not going to be able to get as much work done or you're going to have to shift your hours to, to work in the evening or, or late into the night. Farmers who are uh, using big equipment are probably not going to be affected personally because, you know, the big combines are, are air-conditioned, and so you have some climate controls already there. It appears that for larger farms, the heat risk can be avoided. But otherwise, there is a threat with the warming temperatures. With this in mind, it is important to understand how farmers feel about and are responding to climate change. In his experience, communicating with farmers about the topic, Professor Yoder provided some insight as to the current sentiments in the agricultural world. Certainly, I think farmers are very aware that there's a discussion about climate change, and they see the changes in whether extremes happening, whether or not they're going to attribute that uh, to human-made climate change. And so, functionally, you know, fundamentally, they're going to have to adapt in the same way, whether or not they're, they're whatever they're calling it. My sense is that there is some change in acceptance um, in terms of thinking about calling it climate change and what that means for their operations. Politics in Indiana is another major factor that can influence the actions of farmers and generate a movement in the rural areas to properly address some of the effects of climate change. The State House has sought to help farmers before. Last year, the Indiana House passed a bill that provided funds to farmers who were impacted by grain mill closures. Similarly, another bill was passed that helped landowners receive proper compensation if a city or county invoked eminent domain and took areas of cropland. Even U.S. Senator Mike Braun took action at the national level to help farmers benefit from movements that encouraged them to not farm for a season in order to improve the carbon in the soil. This storing of carbon, called carbon sequestration, helps reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Professor Yoder explains more. You know, Senator Braun has introduced legislation to try and develop a carbon market, voluntary carbon market nationally, especially for farmers and for private forest owners um, to be able to, uh, to benefit from uh, carbon sequestration efforts. And then the state legislators have, have introduced legislation to do the same thing in Indiana, although I don't believe that has passed yet. Besides these actions, there are many more steps that the government could take to encourage farmers to prepare for climate change. With his background in land use conservation, Professor Yoder described why cover crops should be supported by the agricultural sector and the state government. One of the biggest things that could be done relatively quickly would be to incentivize far more cover crop adoption. So cover crops are a typically a non-cash crop that you plant after harvest uh, and that you then terminate before you start planting your cash crop in the, cash crop in the spring. Um, and what cover crops do is firstly prevent soil erosion, but they also help have a root system in the soil uh, over the off-season, which can help with microbial activity in the ground. And that can also be beneficial for soil health and improve uh, water moisture retention during droughts and water infiltration during heavy events. So there's some debate as to whether or not 
cover crops uh, harm or help cash crop yields. It seems that over a few years, it does help yields, or at least doesn't have a, a negative effect on cash crop yields. But you're also uh, sequestering some carbon by having a cover crop grow in the ground that you're then terminating but leaving on top of the soil as you plant your co- your cash crop over it. So that that has a lot of potential um, and to have short-term benefits because it can help farms adapt, at least row crop farms adapt, to increasing uh, precipitation as well as increasing temperatures. But it also has the potential to be beneficial, especially if there is some uh, bigger movement towards voluntary carbon markets in the future as an additional source of revenue for farms. And uh, while I haven't touched on this, it will also allow an additional crop to take up uh, nutrients that are still in the soil following harvest, and that means reducing the amount of nutrients, particularly nitrate, that can wind up in our waterways. When it comes to Indiana and the resulting effects of climate change, one of the areas most likely to be impacted are the rural communities throughout the state. Through efforts such as cover crop adoption, which helps keep carbon in the soil, the effects of climate change could be reduced. Farmers are likely to be hit hard due to the warming temperatures during the summer and the changing seasonal patterns that can cause the timing of precipitation to change. This results in actions such as carbon sequestration to be needed. Despite the fears and worries of climate change, the state government and farmers themselves have begun to take meaningful steps to prepare for the future. Understanding how climate change will impact many of our fellow Hoosiers is an effective tool to help convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to become more environmentally friendly and prepare the state for climate change. Episode 4, Indiana's Severe Weather Future with Dr. Cody Kirkpatrick, a senior lecturer with the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Indiana University. This episode will allow us to understand how climate change will affect the types of extreme weather seen across the state, including tornadoes, floods, and heat waves. o'clock with an ITM8 investigation and a warning about Indiana's electric grid this winter. A new report suggests that a major winter storm could leave parts or all of the state without electricity. This is a big deal. We're joining you from Kilroy's tonight right on Kirkwood Avenue here in Bloomington and as you can see there's still a lot of cleanup happening here from those floodwaters last night. Those with Kilroy's tell us they're hoping to open by Tuesday. It's tomorrow that our severe weather threat moves in. Check this out. Almost the entire state of Indiana is in that enhanced risk. That's a level three out of five. That means severe weather is going to be likely, and this threat is going to be an overnight threat that makes it even more dangerous. When the cold is stretching across the Midwest, the mayor of Indianapolis urged residents to stay indoors. Even 10 minutes of exposure may very well be harmful. Among the effects of climate change most publicized are extreme weather events. While it is still difficult to pinpoint how climate change might have impacted a singular historical event, scientists have found that overall, the planet is likely to experience an intensification of heat waves, droughts, storms, and winter weather. These more extreme variations in the weather of Indiana pose quite a danger to the state. 
Severe weather events can increase the amount of illnesses and deaths among vulnerable populations and lead to billions of dollars worth of damages to local communities statewide. Essential services such as emergency response vehicles, water supplies, and electricity could also be temporarily disrupted during these events. Overall, if climate change continues, this increase in severe weather events could harm Indiana and its Hoosier residents. In the previous episode, heat waves were discussed in regard to its impact on Hoosier farmers. To reiterate the findings, heat waves are projected to become more common due to climate change. Overall, summers in Indiana will be hotter. It is predicted that the number of days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit could last for about two and a half months on average during the summer months. While for many people this just means they will stay inside more or head to the pool, these events can actually be quite deadly, as Dr. Kirkpatrick describes. Here in Indiana, I think a lot of people don't consider heat waves as a severe weather or as a type of extreme weather, but on average in the United States, uh, heat causes the most fatalities, the most weather-related fatalities every year, greater number than tornadoes, than flooding, than hurricanes on average every year. And with warmer temperatures that we know are occurring and are going to continue uh, to occur, you can, with those warmer temperatures, also evaporate more water into the atmosphere. So our heat index values, the measure that we use for how uncomfortable it is on a summer day, will also go up and will be higher more often. And so one of the big things we can expect here in Indiana is that summers are going to be all around a little bit more dangerous uh, because they will be both warmer and more humid. As Dr. Kirkpatrick explained, heat waves are extremely dangerous and can even exacerbate extreme weather, coinciding with heat waves or droughts, which may hurt the water supply and can lead to prime wildfire conditions that could impact parts of Indiana's forests. Similarly, the urban heat island effect, which is the increase in warmth in a city due to the structures such as buildings, will intensify and keep cities much hotter than surrounding rural areas. This makes finding a place outside to cool off way more difficult. However, the most important risk lies in the damage that could be done to human health. As stated previously, heat waves lead to the most weather-related deaths on average every year. High air temperatures can result in heat stroke and dehydration risk, which hurt the cardiovascular and nervous systems. Warmer weather can also harm the air quality for many areas of the state due to the increase in ozone levels present at the surface. Ozone, in large quantities, can wreak havoc on the body and lead to both lung and heart-related issues. Dr. Kirkpatrick explains who will be impacted most by these risks associated with heat waves. Anybody that is vulnerable, so the elderly, children, the homeless population, anyone who is vulnerable to heat stress, heat-related stress, will have to be much more vigilant as the years go by in the coming decades because this risk will increase. While some months may experience these warmer temperatures and heat waves, another threat posed by climate change is an increase in flooding. Research from the Environmental Protection Agency has found that since 1970, the average annual rainfall has increased for the majority of the Midwest by about 5 to 10 percent. However, what is most dangerous is the discovery that on the four wettest days of the year, the amount of precipitation received has increased by about 35%. These days are the ones that have the highest potential to result in the worst floods. Dr. Kirkpatrick details this phenomena 
and the resulting consequences. One of the things that we have already seen is an increase in rainfall here in the Midwest. Uh, we've seen that over the last few decades. In the really statistics that we've looked at, um, one thing that seems to be happening is that those what we would call high-end days, the extreme rainfall days, those have, in some cases, gotten more extreme. So on the heaviest days, or the, the days with heaviest rain, the totals are even higher. Those days certainly put extra stress on all of our river systems from the, the small creeks and streams that you have you know, running behind your house or uh, under the road or even to the, the bigger, more major river systems. Uh, and that extra stress comes because when the rains are very heavy, these thunderstorm rains that we get or when we get rain for several days in a row, uh, much of the water is runoff. It, it, it goes directly into the streams because the ground will saturate pretty quickly. And so that extra stress on the river systems of, of all sizes is something that we will have to be aware of and watchful for. Central Indiana is no stranger to extreme flooding. At the start of this program, you heard a news report that explained the damage done to Kilroy's on Kirkwood, one of the most well-known bars in Bloomington, and found right next to the campus of Indiana University. These floods occurred last June and were a result of heavy rains and thunderstorms moving over central Indiana. Dr. Kirkpatrick provides more details. It was sometime in June, I think, when the campus river flooded and part of Kirkwood, uh, there by Kirkwood in Indiana, flooded. And I think there was, uh, it was probably three or four feet of standing water down there. You could see some of the newspaper stands were floated. And I think there was a car or two that were caught up in that also. That was one of those special extreme cases that developed from multiple thunderstorms. So you had a period of several hours where thunderstorms kept forming over and over uh, over Bloomington and really almost along Highway 46 for some reason. So uh, Bloomington, Ellettsville, almost all the way up to Terre Haute. And they kept developing in the same place for a few hours. One thunderstorm on its own will not often cause something like that. But when you get thunderstorms for hours and hours, you are going to overwhelm even the best drainage system, even the best sewage system cannot handle that much rain in that short of a period of time. There's really nothing you could do. Those events are going to happen sometimes. For Bloomington, this was certainly a day in which too much stress was placed on the drainage system of the city. This event resulted in over 17 water rescues by the Bloomington Fire Department and the death of a Bloomington resident. In response to what he called a, quote, once-in-a-century rain, unquote, Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton announced the continuation of the Hidden River Pathway Project which seeks to connect the flood-prone areas of Kirkwood to an area south of the street in which better water infrastructure could alleviate some of the problems. While efforts are being made to prevent a future event from happening, the mayor believes that due to climate change, more events like this are likely to occur and be even more intense. Other areas of Indiana are likely to have their own problems. For example, a unique event that occurs in the weather of northwestern Indiana is lake-effect snow due to Lake Michigan. This weather pattern is what gives Chicago its extremely cold winters. For many, these events coincide with heavy snow that makes commute practically impossible due to the severe conditions and can often lead to airport delays and power outages. When this coincides with strong wind gusts, blizzards form, and freezing temperatures dominate the region. 
While this is one extreme, the lake effect snow can also result in an average snowball fight, non-serious type of weather day. Dr. Kirkpatrick provides more insight as to how lake effect snow works and how climate change might modify the winter weather in this section of the state. Lake effect snow and Lake Michigan are, uh, that lake effect snow is one of the fun things to experience in northern Indiana, I think, in the wintertime. And one of the things about uh, lake effect snow and Lake Michigan is that climate change does not mean that winter will go away uh, here in Indiana. Uh, we will still have cold weather. We will still get snow. And for lake effect snow specifically in northern Indiana, when you get that cold Canadian air that moves over the lake and then onto the land, that's what produces the lake effect snow. And so we will still get cold air from Canada. And as long as the lake is not frozen, you can get enough heat transfer from the water into the air to warm up the air and give it water vapor and produce clouds and snow. And we will still get that in the winter. And actually, it might be possible, we're still studying this, but it might be possible that we could have more opportunity for lake effect snow because the warming of the climate means that the Great Lakes are not freezing over for as long every winter. The water temperatures are a little bit warmer, so maybe there's a little bit more heat available from the water that can be taken up by the air and turned into clouds and snow in the winter. So that's one that we've got to watch. It might seem maybe counterintuitive, right, that a warming climate could produce more snow, but if it warms the water and gives us more chance to do that, it is possible that that could happen. Some of the greatest influences on the weather in our state and the rest of the country are the upper atmospheric conditions that are prime for the development of extreme weather events. In the atmosphere, temperature differences are what drive the changes in wind speeds that influence weather events on the ground. For example, scientists believe that climate change might be impacting the jet stream found in the northern hemisphere that typically blows west to east with the flows moving north and south. Dr. Kirkpatrick highlights how the shifts in the jet stream associated with climate change will likely alter the weather here in Indiana. So with climate change, one of the things that we are able to get a good handle on, and we are really confident about how things will change in the future, are these big, large atmospheric patterns, uh, flow patterns and circulation patterns and such. One of the big things that we are likely to see changes in is what we call the jet stream, the fast moving ribbon of air high in the atmosphere that really works to move our weather systems around. We have seen decades of warming in the Arctic already, and we know that that has disrupted the temperature differences across the globe that produce wind in the atmosphere. And it is likely that the jet stream will start to maybe fluctuate north and south more often, become more wavy. What that could do is lead to more surges of warm and cold air uh, here in Indiana more often. Uh, you know, we talk about how in the winter and even here in the spring, we get two or three days of cold weather and then two or three days of warm weather, and it just sort of oscillates back and forth. Those surges of warm and cold could become uh, more often. And I think that's something that if the jet stream continues to fluctuate more often, that's something we could come to expect. These fluctuations, according to many scientists, are being intensified by climate change 
and likely leading to more extreme weather events occurring. Such events include severe thunderstorms and tornadoes, which have made headlines recently due to the amount of tornadoes that have impacted the Midwest, Great Plains, and the South frequently throughout the last year. The conditions that can lead to the creation of these storm systems have become more common. With this in mind, Dr. Kirkpatrick gives an explanation of how thunderstorms are going to change and what researchers know now. So their intensity or their frequency, how often they happen, uh, how thunderstorms are going to change as the climate continues to change is something that we're still trying to get a better handle on. And part of the reason that that has been kind of challenging is that individual thunderstorms are really small. An individual thunderstorm might be 10 or 15 miles across uh, in size, and that's it. And so trying to understand how those small phenomena might change when it is the climate of the entire globe is changing has been uh, and continues to be a little bit challenging. So we're still trying to hone in on that. But we know that to get thunderstorms, we have ingredients that we need. We need warm and humid air, which we will definitely have. And for those thunderstorms to become severe, producing damaging winds, uh, large hail or tornadoes, we need an additional ingredient, wind shear. We need the wind speed and the wind direction uh, changing as you go higher up into the atmosphere compared to here at the ground. And one of the ways that we're trying to track how severe weather could change in the future is just to ask the question, well, how many days a year do we have all of those ingredients come together in the same place at the same time? Most of the studies that we have so far uh, show that across most of the United States, we expect those ingredients that produce the severe thunderstorms that can cause wind, hail, and tornadoes to come together more frequently. That is the expectation for now. We are still trying to understand, though, exactly where and exactly how often, because remember, thunderstorms and tornadoes are even smaller. Thunderstorms are small phenomena. So pinpointing exactly who will get how much more severe weather and exactly how much is still open. But overall, in aggregate, the expectation is that they'll probably happen uh, a little bit more often. When it comes to Indiana and the resulting effects of climate change, it seems that all areas of the state are prone to the severe weather that is expected to occur more frequently in the future. Northwestern Indiana may have more lake effects snow-related events, while central Indiana may have more floods. The knowledge about climate change's overall impact on Indiana's weather is an ongoing source of study, but at the moment, steps are being taken to prepare for what is currently known. Local governments have experienced severe weather events and are implementing solutions that might mitigate the effects of another one. Being knowledgeable about the increasing frequency of severe weather events due to climate change is an effective tool to convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to become more environmentally friendly and prepare the state for climate change. Episode 5, The Hoosier Environmental Council. This is the fifth and final episode based around an interview with Jesse Garbanda, the executive director of the Hoosier Environmental Council, an organization that supports sustainable farming, modernizing transportation, transition to greener energy, and protecting the health of Hoosiers.
about climate change, a climate action event held at the Indiana State House today. More than 100 members of the group confront the climate crisis, gathered to discuss the importance of taking care of the planet. It centered around support for two pieces of legislation that are sponsored by Republican State Senator Ron Alting. One is a resolution to acknowledge the problem of climate change. The other would create a climate and environmental justice task force. Senator Alting says he proposed the legislation because of what he's seen happen to the environment during his own lifetime. For many Hoosiers, there is a sense of urgency. Over the last few decades, the effects of climate change have been forewarned, and some areas of the state have already begun to take notice. Farmers have indicated that there has been a change in seasonal weather patterns impacting the crop yields and altering the timing of planting and harvesting. Bloomington residents have experienced once-in-a-century floods, and all Hoosiers have faced the hot summers that have become more frequent. Many residents have started to take action. Earlier this year, students from every region of the state met with Republican State Senator Ron Alting in support of his bill to tackle climate change issues in Indiana. Despite the support, the state government has not indicated that they will hear the legislation, and supporters believe that Indiana has not properly understood the threat to the environment, economy, and the health of Hoosiers that climate change can pose. Despite this, there are many environmental groups across the state who hope to change the trajectory of Indiana by changing the perspectives of Hoosiers and providing an understanding about climate change. This would generate support for proper responses and actions that could protect the state. One such group is the Hoosier Environmental Council. For 39 years, the Hoosier Environmental Council has been hard at work advocating for Indiana to become a, quote, better place to live, breathe, work, and play, unquote. The organization hopes to encourage Hoosiers to become more environmentally conscious and understand the possible climate solutions and pathways forward that Indiana could take. Executive Director Jesse Carbonda has, throughout his career, been passionate about expanding the tent of people who are concerned about the environment and climate. One such method of doing so is reaching out to people who otherwise may be apathetic to environmental issues. Mr. Carbonda explains why three communities, the faith, public health, and business, are a priority for the outreach of the Hoosier Environmental Council. Priorities over the last several years have been the faith community, the public health community, and the business community. And it's not to say that any of those three wouldn't be aware of environmental issues. We're certainly making a very intentional effort to engage all those three constituencies. And so, you know, the majority of Hoosiers are people of faith, and these belief systems are always leading them to the conclusion that um, they need to be better environmental stewards. And our aim is to really, again, make these uh, congregations more aware that there are here and now public policy solutions that can take place in the, in the General Assembly to meet their needs, to, to speak to their needs. Likewise, for the business community, you know, we're very much wanting to lift up those businesses that are adopting really good sustainability practices. It might be a solar company that's homegrown here in Indiana and that's employing people in kind of an underinvested part of the state. Or it could be, you know, a company that uh, is in the business of community-supported agriculture and that wants to foster grown organic agriculture. So that's another dimension of what we're trying to do. With the public health community, you know, there's a very clear link between climate change and public health as temperatures increase in our state and across the, the country and globe. Uh, it's going to mean more heat waves. And that's, of course, an area that public health professionals care about because they have solutions about how to protect people, uh, the elderly and other vulnerable people from heat waves. Uh, 
you think about the fact that climate change is going to lead to shorter winters, which is going to lead to more infectious diseases like Lyme disease. So those are the reasons, those are the constituencies that we really prioritize, and those are the messages we really focused on. The Hoosier Environmental Council hopes that through these efforts of connecting with communities, more people will be supportive of environmental actions across the state. Another such method is through reaching across the aisle to people who share different political beliefs than oneself. This has been done by Republican State Senator Ron Olting, who worked with Democratic State Representative Carrie Hamilton in the State House to create the aforementioned climate bills. While these efforts are an uphill battle and have yet to be considered, their bipartisanship is admirable. Mr. Carbonda details the work done by the Hoosier Environmental Council to find common ground in support of the environment. I think our approach at the Hoosier Environmental Council is to build bridges. And so what, what ends up happening is that uh, there's definitely a good portion of lawmakers who trust our knowledge and our experience and with whom we have built long-time relationships who are influenced by our thinking. And there's another portion of people who are extremely skeptical of it, not because they know us, but because they don't know us. And it turns out that even people who can be polar opposite to us on one issue could be supportive of us on another issue. And so we have to keep having dialogue with everybody because you never know where you can find that common ground. I'd love to think of that there's a very, very conservative lawmaker in our state who have a creationist view as opposed to a view that's grounded in Darwinian evolutionary thinking. This, this lawmaker, you would think, wouldn't find any common ground with us, but ended up backing a renewable energy bill. We always have to learn the very most that we can about the lawmaker, and then eventually um, we can figure out some area where we can work together. When it comes to climate change and the threat it poses, there is a need for all Hoosiers and all Americans to work together to address the common battles we will all face. Climate change will impact everyone, no matter the political background or economic class. However, there are groups of people out there who actively seek to influence politics in a manner that environmental issues are never properly addressed. Mr. Carbada has first-hand experience in facing up against the people and organizations who have this power and provides insight as to where the power lies. I would say that the top two challenges we face are that large economic special interests have an undue grip on the legislature and that there's a portion of lawmakers who are very rigid in their belief systems and it doesn't matter whatever science or economic arguments you use, they are wedded to their ideological thinking. The power sector, the electrical utility lobby, the agribusiness lobby, and the developer lobby, those three businesses exert undue influence, we believe, in the legislature. And that, I think, is to the detriment of our air and land and water quality. Despite the politics at play, there are efforts being made to improve the environmental conditions of the state. One of the methods that could help prevent the worst effects of climate change worldwide is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. These pollutants, including carbon dioxide and methane, will continue to warm the planet the more prevalent they become in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide, or CO2, accounts for about 80% of all the greenhouse gas emissions coming from the United States. The largest sources of carbon dioxide come from transportation, mainly through the use of gas cars as well as the burning of fossil fuels to generate electricity. Mr. Carbonda discusses the efforts of the Hoosier Environmental Council to generate public support for more renewable and cleaner forms of energy. You know, one piece of responding to climate change is helping to bring about reductions in gas emissions in the state. And the three biggest opportunities we see cut emissions in our state are in solar energy, electric vehicles, and mass transit. 
the long-term goal for rooftop solar is to make it more affordable and accessible uh, by the uh, extension of net metering, which is a policy that's going to phase out next year in Indiana. Policy area that we want to work on is uh, electric vehicles. How do we make electric vehicles not only accessible to the wealth to everyday people, and if there, how do we get electric vehicles in places that can make a real difference in air quality? So, for example, Indiana has these pockets of what we call environmental injustice hotspots, areas where people have an undue burden of pollution. They, they just face too much pollution. And if we can deploy electric vehicles in those communities, we will help to reduce pollution there. So, for example, if there is a dump truck moving through that community that is spewing diesel exhaust, it's obviously not going to help with air quality in that local and so the idea would be to try to provide an incentive to replace the old diesel dump truck with an electric power dump truck. That's kind of a second policy area of cutting greenhouse gas emissions that we want to see happen. A third area is mass transit. Indianapolis passed a referendum a few years ago, uh, which is leading to a significant expansion of mass transit. But there's a faction of the Indiana General Assembly that wants to cut funding for this Central Indiana mass transit expansion, and there's a necessity to fight back and try to defeat those bills so that mass transit can have the chance to truly succeed in Indianapolis. And if it does, then it will really inspire other communities to do something similar. Besides reducing greenhouse gas emissions through a conversion to more renewable energy sources, general environmental advocacy could help improve the current situation that Indiana finds itself in. The Hoosier Environmental Council wants to use nature to help the state fight climate change. For example, the protection of wetlands is necessary to prevent flooding, as these areas along the state's rivers act as a sponge, and the area is less likely to flood. There is also a movement to remove the coal ash ponds across the state that can lead to pollutants entering our state's waterways. Mr. Carbonda advocates for these policy positions and climate adaptations. On the adaptation side, as far as long-term priorities for ACC, one of them is to reverse what happened when S. 89 was passed. 89 is, is a bill that really weakens wetlands protections in Indiana, and wetlands are really important, especially in the context of climate change, because wetlands are incredibly good sponges that can help to essentially absorb a lot of flood water in the event of a massive rain event. But the problem is that S. 89 significantly weakens protections for wetlands. Another public policy that we want to see with respect to climate adaptation is related to the fact that we have a lot of coal ash waste pits and a lot of factory farm waste pits that are in floodplains. And if there's a severe flooding event, those waste pits could break up and spew a ton of pollutants into our rivers and streams. And so we've got to enact public policy in our state that relocates these waste pits away from floodplains so that we protect the rivers and we also protect the groundwater that is oftentimes very near these rivers. When it comes to Indiana and the resulting effects of climate change, there is a sense that unity and support is needed between all Hoosiers to address the crisis that will impact all of us. Work done through organizations such as the Hoosier Environmental Council seek to find common ground between both the citizens and policymakers to find common solutions to this statewide and global problem. Similarly, there are current trends that are leaning towards a more renewable future, with cleaner energy and vehicles gaining more and more support across the state. Boosting the natural environment of Indiana has been shown to protect us from the effects of climate change and advocacy is needed to ensure that the protections are enshrined into law for the future.
being knowledgeable about the Hoosier Environmental Council and actions being taken to both mitigate and respond to the climate crisis is an effective tool to convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to become more environmentally friendly and prepare the state for climate change. This is the last episode of WFHB Community Radio's multi-part series, Climate Change in Indiana. Thanks to Professor Kravitz, Professor Yoder, Professor Kirkpatrick, and Mr. Carbonda for enthusiastically being a part of this project. While Indiana will face many challenges in the future, the state is making progress to be ready for whatever is to come. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Wines-Apple. <laughs>